The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I am joined today by Regina Black to talk about her novel, The Art of Scandal, and also how Black women attain their power and what does it mean to write a soapy drama. Regina Black, thank you for joining us to talk about The Art of Scandal. Uh, Thank you for having me. And um, what is your definition of feminism? Um, I my definition of feminism is um, women. All women are treated equally. Um, it's also extremely inclusive and intersectional. There's no right way to be a woman. So um, that's how I think about feminism. And what is the art of scandal about? The Art of Scandal is a contemporary romance, and it's about a woman, a 37-year-old woman, who finds out her husband is cheating on her, and she agrees to fake her a perfect marriage with her cheating husband because he's a politician in exchange for a large divorce divorce settlement. Um, But then she starts questioning her life choices when she meets this handsome young artist who kind of makes her remember who she was before she got married, but he also has some secrets of his own. The book has been compared to, uh, has um, been compared to a version of The Good Wife meets a Tia Williams novel, The Little Bit of Scandal. And, you know, it's, it's a bit spicy. There's romance, but there's, but more than that, it's really about attaining power. How have you seen Black women regain their power in society? And what did you, or how did you reflect that in this story? Um, I, I guess I'll go back to my, when we, I was talking about my definition of feminism. Um, what I wanted to do in the story was really think about how we typically think about Black women in as marriage partners um, how we perceive them in the public eye. Um, I think in the past, we've had a very specific idea of what Black women could be or what a Black woman looks like or the roles that Black women have. And I think more and more, um, you've seen a lot of people challenge that. We've, we've been able to be portrayed in lots of different roles. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to do in The Artist Scandal with Rachel Abbott was to write a Black woman that was in this role of a a trophy wife, um, put on a pedestal. Because that's just not something historically that has been associated with Black women. Um, Being a stay-at-home mother, that's also something that hasn't really been associated with us. 
And it was really interesting to kind of explore that with her, with keeping in mind that this is a Black woman and that experience is different for us and the expectations are different for us. Um, So those are some things that I try to do in the book and I think are more of a reflection of you are seeing Black women in different roles and in different ways. And I think society is still kind of adjusting to that in a lot of ways. And it's interesting how you talk about Rachel being a stay-at-home wife and a trophy wife and Mm -hmm. how that's also been negatively regarded. But Mm -hmm. for a Black woman, it's still just something that a role that she's never um, or that has rarely been able to happen for a Black woman. So you have these roles that are deemed um, negative, but it's like, hey, for Black women, we don't even get to be a trophy wife or get to be, you know, get to stay at home and explore home decor and all those different things. So you're you're building a home and a life, but there's also people who don't have access to it. Yes. Yeah. And, and the book also kind of addresses how we devalue that type of labor, um, that the mental load that women have um, when you are in that role and just the vulnerability that's associated with even having that kind of role. And I mean, you really could think about the fact that it is a vulnerable position to be in, to be dependent on this other person. You know, Black women, we tend to be just socially vulnerable already. So, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I was very much encouraged to be independent, to have my own money. And I think a lot of that just kind of comes from the fact that in general, in society, we are part of a population that is disproportionately vulnerable. So I, I thought it was interesting to, to write through that lens but also kind of explore this different position that I put Rachel in that we don't see that often. On a on another part as well, soapy dramas, beachside reads often get casted off to the side as just like, oh, this is just something fun you do under an umbrella when you where you are looking at the water. But as we've been talking about, this book provides so much more than that, along with the the joy of just in being engrossed in someone else's story. What was writing a fun soapy drama like? Oh, it was fun. <laughs> it was um, so you know I grew up and I I grew up watching daytime soaps. That's what my mother watched. That's what you know, Young and Restless, all of that stuff. That kind of raised me. And that you also, I also watched, you know, the nighttime dramas, the Shonda Rhimes shows, things like that. And, and what they all have in common is this really kind of propulsive pace of like, you, you just kind of keep turning in because you want to see what's going to happen next. And they're all kind of set in these small, um, it's sometimes it's a small town or small city or like in, in Grey's Anatomy, it's a hospital, but there, there are these really kind of small settings with these characters that have these histories and these connections. And it just creates this opportunity to weave these really compelling interactions between all these characters and to capture that propulsive kind of, I've got to see what happens next. I've got to see what happens next. That keeps you turning the page. It was challenging, but it was really fun just to think about, okay, how am I going to end this chapter or what's going to happen next? 
And it was also fun to kind of think about that through the lens of a romance novel because I grew up reading romance novels. And so those two things really intersect in a lot of ways that people might not realize. So combining those two things, I was able to write a story that captured the emotional experience of watching those soaps or reading those romance novels that I always loved, but I also got to talk about things that were important to me as we were talking about earlier. So it was a really fun process to think through it that way. Yes. And my last question for you is what organization would you like to amplify to our audience? Well, um, I do a lot of work here in Little Rock with Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. Um, And that's an organization that does policy work here in the state of Arkansas to just advocate for policies and laws that improve the lives of children and families in the state. Um, And that is really important to me. I'm a mother. I have a small daughter. um, And I, growing up, I relied a lot on the type of social programs that that organization advocates for the support of. So that is definitely an organization that I feel really passionate about. Regina Black, thank you for joining us to talk about the art of scandal. Oh, you, thank you for having me. We learned about patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism from our parents as they shaped our behavior to make us successful in a world dominated by those social forces. But this taught us to ignore and deny our needs, which is why so many of us don't know how to meet or even identify them. This also leads to conflict with our children, because we can't find strategies that meet our and our children's needs. Fortunately, there's a way we can make family life easier and create a better world in the process. Parenting Beyond Power, a new book by parenting educator Jen Lumanlin of Your Parenting Mojo, offers a simple yet revolutionary framework to replace the conventional parent-child power struggle with collaboration. This new approach helps parents look beneath challenging behaviors, stalling, throwing tantrums, using mean words, and hitting, to find and meet children's needs without conventional discipline like timeouts, countdowns, and consequences. And most of the time, this helps us to meet our own needs too. With sample scripts, flowcharts, resources, and more, find solutions that make parenting dramatically easier. Parenting Beyond Power, How to Use Connection and Collaboration to Transform Your Family and the World is available now wherever books are sold or online at penguinrandomhouse.com. Find more information, videos, and bonuses at yourparentingmojo.com slash book. Become a better feminist and better teacher of the next generation of men with How to Raise a Feminist Son by Sonora Ja, author of the recent acclaimed novel, The Laughter. Beautifully written and deeply personal, this tour de force memoir follows the struggles and triumphs of a single immigrant mother of color trying to instill feminist values in her American son. From teaching consent to counteracting problematic messages from the media, well-meaning family, and our culture at large, Ja offers an empowering, imperfect feminism brimming with honest insight and actionable advice. Ja draws on her work as a professor of journalism specializing in social justice movements and social media, conversations had with experts, psychologists, and fellow parents, and powerful stories from her own life to show us all how to raise feminist sons in this electrifying memoir. Says Ijoma Oluo, this book is a true love letter not only to Jaw's own son, but also to all of our sons and to the parents, especially mothers who raised them. Says Rebecca Solnit, a beautiful hybrid of memoir, manifesto, instruction manual, and rumination on the power of story and the possibility of family. 
Further praised by Mira Jacob, Soraya Shamali, and more, and featured in Ms. Magazine, NPR, The Rumpus, Booklist, and Publishers Weekly, How to Raise a Feminist Son is a must-read for anyone trying to raise boys. How to Raise a Feminist Son, a Memoir and Manifesto by Sonora Ja is available wherever books are sold or online at penguinrandomhouse.com. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to have these guests on today. My name is Renee Powers. I use she, her pronouns. And as you know, I'm located in Minneapolis. And today I am joined by Molly Adams and Sydney Golden Anderson. They are the authors of Birding for a Better World, a guide to finding joy and community in nature. And they're also part of the Feminist Bird Club. So you know we are aligned. So welcome. I'm going to have Molly go ahead and introduce yourself first. Thank you, Renee. Um, My name is Molly Adams. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns, and I'm in the Catskills in New York. And Sydney. My name is Sydney, and I use she, her pronouns, and I am based out of the foothills of Colorado. Wonderful. Well, one of the questions that we love to ask our guests is, what does it mean to you to be feminist? Sure. I'll take this one first. I tried to keep it simple, um, but to me, it means to work towards a better world for everyone while prioritizing people with the most vulnerable intersecting identities. That's lovely. I I think that's a really important for us to um, start with the most vulnerable because when we meet those needs, we meet everybody's needs. And that's something that I just feel we don't we don't speak about enough. So Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that that's, that is your definition. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. Um, Yeah. And for me, uh, being a feminist is about intersectionality. It's about advocacy for anyone who identifies with a historically marginalized identity. And it means that we fight to be seen in our unique wholeness. So it's really about uh, protecting our sacred right to live and live well, free from misogyny, racist, sexist, and or homophobic violence, from abuse, and from reproductive injustices. Mm. And in both Feminist Bird Club and Feminist Book Club, (laughs) those definitions, I think, align beautifully with how we see community and how we see our Mm -hmm. hobbies, really. Um, However, I have as a, you know, white, femme presenting, um, able-bodied, you know, fairly privileged younger woman, I have been accused of being performative. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to say, yes, what we're doing here is truly radical and intersectional. And if you just go a layer deeper... And you look at the work that we're doing, you know, let the work speak for itself. You can see that what we're doing is truly radical and intersectional. And yours is too. We're not just giving lip service to the word feminist. Um, What makes your organization, Feminist Bird Club, and this book in particular, truly feminist to you? Sure. Uh, First, I just want to give credit where credit is due and say that our organization's leadership goes far beyond Sydney and I. Um, And it's made up of people who are trans, queer, disabled, Black, brown, indigenous, and neurodivergent. Um, And we make decisions together and attempt to function in a non-hierarchical way with the independent chapters that do the same. Our 
nonprofit, and all the chapters are also guided by the set of unifying principles. And the very first principle, you can find them on our website, but the first one defines our feminism as one that addresses intersectional struggles and encourages chapters to all work against perpetuating white feminism um, and any extension of misogyny because um, just as you know, with your organization, just having the word feminist in the title can definitely bring up some misinterpretations of what it means. So we've always been really intentional about that. But one important thing that we focus on as a group is redistributing wealth and supporting grassroots efforts that protect people and the planet. So since 2016, um, we've collect collectively raised over $100,000 for social justice organizations that support asylum seekers, reproductive rights, Indigenous land back projects, ending abuse towards trans and intersex people in prison, and and more. And I'll jump in here too and just say that the book is nothing short of these values. Birding for a Better World consists of essays about feminist bird clubs, practices, and principles. And at its core, it really advocates for cultivating experiences in nature with community that are accessible, inclusive, reciprocal, joyful, and affirming. And uh, I wanted to say that while Molly and I co-authored the collection, we really couldn't have done so without the amazing contributions of Feminist Bird Club members and all the other changemakers who provided quotes for the book and the other changemakers who paved the path that we walk on today. And in addition to that, the book is also illustrated by nearly 20 different artists from our birding community with over 90 original illustrations. So it's super colorful, it's full of life, and we tried to bring as many people into the work as we possibly could. And that's really because Feminist Bird Club is all about collaboration and supporting one another and co-creating the world that we want to see. And, um, you know, in, in tandem with all of that, we in the book itself, we've left space between our writing and between the chapters for readers to co-create the work with us as well. So there are general prompts throughout the book for readers to reflect upon and space for folks to write their thoughts directly into the book. Um, and we really, we feel that the book is honestly incomplete without the contributions of readers um, and, you know, contributions in whatever ways you feel resonates with you. Um, and I just really think that that makes the book super unique. And, and there are also instructions for folks to submit what they've written uh, to us through social media and through our website. So we're really excited to learn how everyone envisions worlds that are more connected and joyful. I adore this book. I I took it with me birding. Um, <laughs> so when I, 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 I don't know if listeners know this about me, but I am a bird lover to my core. I have been going through some just really difficult personal transitions. Um, listeners may not know this quite yet, um, but I'm ready to share that we are transitioning Feminist Book Club into a worker-owned co-op, and I personally am going to be stepping away. Uh, eventually, I'm going to be helping with the transition, obviously, and this decision was not made lightly, um, and one of the things that helped me was this book, actually. I would go to, I would spend some mornings at uh, a bird sanctuary here in Minneapolis, and I would have my bird app open, and it was just very, like, therapeutic, truly, to spend time alone in nature, reflecting, um, and just being present. And there's so much about mindfulness in this book. However, you know, I'm talking about a very solo activity and experience. I had never really considered birding in community. 
and you have a chapter called birding together and it's truly beautiful and it does exactly what you're talking about it highlights the voices within your membership and i would love to know how birding in community has shaped you each and your connection to nature and what does community mean to you then renee uh, i just wanted to say thank you for sharing that with us and it just means so much to me to know that the book has meant something to you already um so thank you so much for that um to answer the last part of your question first Community to me is about caring for one another and sharing brave space with others and feeling safe enough to let your true self shine. And yeah, I think it's about responsibility and accountability and leaning on one another with grace and patience and doing that for each other as we navigate our own complex and messy lives and try to do what's right by one another and by the planet. And birding in community for me uh, especially with birders who are new to birding, because there's just something so, so cool about going out there in the world with other people who maybe don't know as much about birds um, as they'd like to, or they are just interested in learning more. There's just something so special about that. And yeah, I I have PTSD, so I often find it quite difficult to exist in my own body and in the world in general, but there's something about being in nature in the company of other people who share that same kind of excitement that I feel for a bird or for a mushroom or an herbaceous flowering plant on the forest floor that is just so grounding and safe and peaceful for me. And I am so incredibly grateful for those moments. Thank you, Sydney. That was so sweet. So I think I will answer the first part of your question first, Renee, about what birding or how birding in community has shaped me and my connections to nature. So when the Feminist Bird Club was just starting out, I was like, I was really yearning for community because initially when I started birding, um, since there was no Feminist Bird Club, I felt like I was birding mostly by myself or with people who were my mentors, which were amazing people, but it really did feel like there was kind of a disconnect between my life and this new hobby that I was so obsessed with. And so I like I never could have imagined how much the growth of this group would shape and support me as a person. I've just learned so much about myself, my relationship to gender, my disability into the world. And I've made such important friendships and connections through the group. I've experienced a type of joy when birding with the Feminist Bird Club and friends that I rarely experience elsewhere. And I'm also so grateful for it. Martha Harbison, uh, who's from New York City and was our vice president at Feminist Bird Club, brings this up in the Birding Together chapter. So people will be able to read more about it. But there was this one time that was actually caught on camera during a pride walk with the FBC NYC chapter and NYC queer birders, where we all saw a few birds during spring migration taking a bath and we were all just squealing and like crying over the beauty of the moment, both with the with the birds themselves and amongst this group of queer people who felt comfortable enough to be themselves and experience these emotions together in nature. And I will never forget that. So I'm so glad that it's in the book. And what community in general means to me, 
um, is just that community is full of reciprocity and love. Um, it's sharing the feeling of being safe with others so that you can grow together and feel joy together, like kind of what I described with the bird bath moment. But Megadeepa Meiti, who is our current co-president, has a really lovely quote in the better birding section of the book that reads, before we encourage folks from historically excluded communities to rush unhesitatingly into the outdoors, I want us to remember that safety, access, and inclusivity don't just enhance our joy in nature. I strongly believe that they are the prerequisites to experiencing joy. Yeah, just wanted to share that. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, I would love to just ask questions about birds since I very rarely get to talk to other people about birds except my mom <laughs> who I come by I come by burning birding honestly because we would sit my mom lives on and I grew up on a, a house that has a creek in the backyard and some kind of wooded area and we would just sit on the back porch with our I think it was like an Audubon, Audubon guide North American bird guide and we would just watch the birds and try to identify them now we have apps i love that we live in the future um so because i have you both here i would love to talk about birds in general why do we love birds what is this um <laughs> uh, well honestly what's not to love <laughs> they are elusive yet ubiquitous you can look and listen for birds literally everywhere they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors. So let's think ostriches and penguins and hummingbirds and toucans. Uh, there are over 11,000 species globally that we know of, and they occur across every major habitat across the globe. So we literally need birds for ecosystem balance and uh, the planet would collapse without birds. So they are amazing in every way. I uh, support and agree with everything that Sydney just said about birds. Um, I love birds so much and I think that a lot of people are drawn to them because of the ways that they can mark the passing of time. Um, and that's, that's something that I feel due to migration and seasonality um, and they're such a major source of inspiration for art and poetry because they are so intertwined with human lives, especially because of pastimes of bird feeding and birding. They're just such a perfect entry point for connecting with and understanding the natural world. And I feel like I would re be remiss to mention that we're using birding as the verb here and not bird watching. And it's something that I learned in your book is that the reason that we use the phrase birding or the word birding is because you don't have to be watching birds and you don't have to have the uh, ability of sight to enjoy birds and being in birds company and experiencing birds. And so I had never realized that I adopted that. Um, I had adopted that language without knowing why. And so thank you for putting that in the book. Yeah, thank you for being open to change the words that you use to describe the activity. Um, I know that some people will argue that birding versus bird watching differentiates because birding is like more competitive than bird watching. Like bird watching would be to some described as more leisurely, but I really like this new definition from, um, I learned it from Freya McGregor who started the organization Birdability. And ever since I saw her make a post about it, I was 
I just immediately felt like that is the perfect way to describe birding that is inclusive. And I'm so glad to be able to share her knowledge in our book. So um, what birds are your favorites? um this is such a hard question that I have like not been able to answer for most of my life but I finally feel like I can say that night jars are my favorite type of birds like the common night hawk that's on this year's feminist bird club patch um for people who don't know there are these like there are these fun um often brown like striped birds with secretly huge mouths and teeny tiny legs that are either it's me <laughs> <laughs> they are I mean they are just so cute they're they're not seen very often because they're nocturnal or crepuscular um so they're feeding at uh night or dawn or dusk on insects with these like really adorable whiskers but actually in in New York in the Northeast, like it's Nighthawk time right now. So at sunset, if you go and look over like certain bridges or areas where there's a lot of insects, you can see them and they are just incredible. <laughs> I also love Nighthawks. They're, <laughs> they're so great. But um, yeah, my favorite Ripbird of all time right now <laughs> I have to say are buffleheads, bufflehead ducks. Um, I love ducks. I love waterfowl. I think they're a great entry-level bird. Um, they don't fly around quite as quickly as some of your songbirds, so they're easier to observe, which is great. Um, but buffleheads are just basically perfect creatures. Um, listeners, go look them up. They are the cutest little things. They're tiny, they're iridescent, and they have these little white toupees and these itty bitty bills and they're perfect. <laughs> they really are precious. I saw my first one just a couple of years ago. Um, and where I live, I walk my dog every morning and we walk around these like retention ponds and they're always full of wildlife. Um, and it's usually like green herons and egrets and blue herons and, you know, songbirds, red winged blackbirds. Um, but once I saw a bufflehead and I was like, what is that? So I immediately took to, you know, the Merlin bird ID app and I was like, what the hell are you? And yeah, it's just a flash in the pan here in Minnesota. They're here just like, I think, early spring and that's it. He was around mm -hmm. for maybe a week and then he moved on and mm -hmm. I have been chasing that high <laughs> ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do have to throw out my favorite bird is the junco. I don't love winter, but it is the one thing that I uh, look forward to when the seasons change. I just think these dark-eyed juncos are the cutest things I've ever seen in my entire life. They're just little backyard birds. They're mostly black with the little um, grayish-white belly, and they get really fat in the, in the wintertime. And you'll see them at bird feeders. They've got bright feet, and they're just so charming. And I just think they are the cutest <laughs> <laughs> they're so good they're so good and I just recently learned after moving to Colorado that there are several different morphs of juncos and I did not know this prior to moving here so there are um, lots of different variants that I'm I'm currently learning um, but some of them have like rusty patches on their backs and some of them are like have a slightly pink hue to them and yeah juncos are so good they're here year-round too in higher elevations as far as I know looks like I have to come to Colorado and collect juncos. And I, by collect, I mean, just 
log them in my app. <laughs> All right. What's one of your favorite birding moments? We heard about um, at Pride, the the bird bath, but I'm curious, are there other moments that you've experienced that just brought you so much joy? Yeah, I have so many. Um, <laughs> but one that stands out to me and is night jar related um, was in Chiapas in Mexico in this place called Pihihihiapan, which Pihihi is another name for whistling ducks because of the way that the whistling ducks sound when they fly, um, which is like my favorite example of onomatopoeia ever. Um, but I was with my friend Perbita Saha doing a bird banding and molt class where we would get up before the sun for a week to catch um, and band migrating birds. And on the drive to the site, we would always see uh, little like eyes shining in the headlights in the street. And it was this night jar um, called a paroque. Um, and finally, on our last day of banding, we caught one in the very early morning in the net. And so I got to see one up close with its little whiskers. And um, it was just the best <laughs> that is so special molly um and yeah the first uh thing that came to mind when thinking about this question uh, was also an experience that i had in central america so a few years ago i was i was in costa rica and i was maybe a quarter of a mile into the rainforest just exploring looking for birds um with some intention but just really being in nature um and you know that feeling when you're in a new place and like all of your senses are aflame and that's what it was like you know just so just like rich with readiness and just you don't know what's going to happen next and it's just so exciting um and then suddenly i heard the most alien sound that i've ever heard in my life ricocheting through the forest and it was like loud like right overhead and uh the bird turned out to be uh, what I found out was a Montezuma orpindola, which is <laughs> a wild name for a bird. And uh, I uh, I never actually laid eyes on the bird. Um, that, that experience itself, I have seen them since, um, but I will never forget that sound and just how full of magic and awe for this mysterious planet I, I felt in that moment. I have to go look up videos or sound recordings of this immediately. Uh, yeah, you, you really must. do. <laughs> you should like splice some in the podcast. Maybe I will. Oh my maybe gosh. Will. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll I want to share mine as well. So um, I didn't I didn't know that this existed. I was in Cape Coral, Florida, at the beginning of this year, actually, and uh, my mom and I go down to Florida for her birthday usually um, in January, and we stay somewhere new every year we were staying in cape coral and um, cape coral is the home of the burrowing owls and they take such good care the city takes such good care of the burrowing owls it's exactly what they sound like they are about the size of a like a coke can um little tiny owls that dig holes in the ground and and nest in the ground it was incredible we you know i got there at night i was by myself and I kept, like you said, I kept seeing eyes in the dark and I was like, what is that? And it turns out these cute little tiny charming owls. And we were 
completely charmed our entire stay there. We got shirts. We went to a festival and there was somebody dressed up as a burrowing owl. So we had our picture taken with the the person dressed up. It was just an absolute delight. So um, that is one of my favorite birding moments. It was just accidental. Uh, I I love that. As soon as you said the name of the location, I was like, I know this is going to be about burrowing owls. Uh, It's like... it's and I feel like so many people have a similar experience to you because I'm not sure if you saw them on like it's like a college campus field or something um which they are in Cape Coral and then also uh across the way in another location in Florida I think it's like the University of Florida or something where they've like dedicated this little space near a parking lot in the college where they where they just protect the owls and so it's I feel like college students just see town. them yeah it's so it's, it's it's so magical you can tell where um their burrows are because the city will place like pvc pipes like three pvc pipes that say like don't mow here so literally all over the city just on the sides of the road or boulevards or people's yards, they have these PVC pipes and you're like, Oh, that's a, that's a brewing out burrow right there. Like look out for our new friends. Um, and it's so, it's beautiful to see how integrated it is into the community because the people are really looking out for these little tiny birds. And they were very, um, as far as I read, they were n- not endangered. What's the, they were critical. What's the up? one from threatened threatened they were threatened and so they you know made a lot of effort to protect the birds and yeah and it seems like they're doing just fine these days so that was that was a delight all right this is feminist book club meets feminist bird club so (laughs) i have to our my final question for you both is do you have any favorite books about birds or birding that have obviously not your own which is my favorite book about (laughs) birds and birding go ahead um, well, speaking of burrowing owls, I do love Hoot by Carl Hyacin. <laughs> um, it's a great book. It is a children's book, but I still love it. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, my favorite book about birds and birding is Keep Looking Up, Your Guide to the Powerful Healing of Bird Watching by Tama Watts. Um, it was just released this year. It is so, so good. Uh, I highly recommend that everyone go out and buy themselves a copy right now. It's like a gentle, warm hug that gives you basically all the permission that you need to feel and grieve and heal with birds when you need them most. Um, And I just couldn't recommend it more. Yeah, I also absolutely love Keep Looking Up um, by Tama Watts. And I will mention another one, but I just also had to say that it, I think is my favorite bird related book because of how impactful it was on me and we're so lucky to be um colleagues and friends with Tama Watts um so shout out to her uh, but this year I also read um Birding While Indian by Thomas Gannon which is just a really powerful memoir uh, where he intertwines his experiences as a birder and as a, a Lakota tribal member with the devastating and far-reaching impacts of colonialism in the United States. It's 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 really incredible. I'm immediately requesting those from my library. Thank you so much. Um, and listeners, we will put those in the show notes as well as Brooding for a Better World. And 
more information about the feminist bird club will also be in the show notes molly sydney thank you so so much for the work that you do um and you know thank you to feminist bird club which is so much more than just you two um for the work that they do as well and this book is so lovely thank you so much for joining me today Thank you so much. It's been so much fun talking to you. And thank you for the work that you do with Feminist Bird Club. It's been so special to talk to you. Renee, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, and yeah, just a delightful time. And it's just been, yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for having us. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.